Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We'll be talking to Lula Allender, who will be reading from and talking to us about her book, Grounding, Finding Home in a Garden. So Lula, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. Any time. So let's just, we'll dive right in. Okay. So what led to writing Grounding, Finding a Home in a Garden? So the book initially started as a bit of a different book. I was exploring ideas of homesickness, particularly connected to a house that we had to move out of when I was 11, when my parents got divorced. And I couldn't really find a shape for the book. I was kind of scrabbling around to try and make it work and it wasn't working. And I had a conversation with my editor and she said, why don't you write about your garden? And I kind of realized that that was the key, that I, I'd been looking for a kind of hook and a way to hang my narrative on this. Yeah, something that was kind of relatable and interesting and that was really rooted in the situation that I was going through at the time. And that, that was brilliantly observed of her, that she realized that should be the garden. So at the time, my mum had just died and it was a kind of a period of a lot of change and flux for me. And we got told that our house was going on the market. So I just, we rent our house. I have four children and we've lived here for quite a long time. And we kind of thought this would always be our home. Um, and partly because of the timing of it after my mum had just died, it was like a real, it was a real shock. And it sent me into this strange state of kind of paralysis where I didn't feel like it was worth, you know, painting any bits of the house or doing anything in the garden because we were going to have to leave anyway. And uh, so the book is, about how I how I kind of worked through that by tending the garden and planting things as an act of faith that we would be here to see them grow and that I decided I couldn't really live with this despondency and dejection of just waiting for someone else to buy the house and to kick us out and there was a sense of real powerlessness and so writing the book is really a kind of exploration of how we create a sense of home um, and in my little world it was doing it in my garden but I was also interested in other people and how they use their gardens I was interested in stories from all around the world um, and looking at experiences of exile um, looking at refugee stories but in no way trying to draw any equivalence from what was going on with me with all these you know horrendous things people are experiencing but yeah, it was that sense of uprooting and dislocation I was really wanting to explore. That sounds really like a like an odd time of life, like a crossroads that you don't plan to be in. And I like that writing was kind of an answer to working through all of that and sharing that with, you know, with readers. Could we ask for a reading, please? Yeah, sure. So I thought I'd start with the prologue because it kind of sets it all up. Um, so some time ago, there was a year that seemed impossible. My mother had died following a long illness. Politics was fracturing, exposing fault lines many of us had willfully overlooked. The world was waking up to the fact that we only had a decade to slow down climate change before catastrophe hit. That summer, when I felt unmoored in my grief and horrified by what was happening globally, we came home from a holiday to find a letter from the executors of our recently deceased landlord's estate. Our house, the place my husband, four children and I have called home for 10 years now, which has seen sorrow, laughter, gatherings and 60 family birthdays, was going on on the market. At a dinner with friends that Christmas, someone told me, my aunt is buying your house. I didn't know what to say. I looked online at house listings and found photographs of my children's bedrooms, the desirable garden and interior in need of some modernisation. It was a humiliation to have our lives exposed like this. 
The prospect of relocating a family of six people, four chickens, a dog and a cat made me feel queasy. Over the weeks and months that followed, we struggled to find another house we could afford. The unsettledness plunged me into a blank despair. The house was caught up in a bitter probate dispute and we were told there was a chance we might be able to stay depending on the outcome. We'd been evicted from a previous house when I was pregnant with our second son, but back then it didn't feel as disastrous. Perhaps because we'd only lived in that house for a few months, whereas this place truly felt like our home. The place where I'd allowed myself to imagine our four children growing up and us growing old, even though we were renting it. I swung between feeling utterly heartbroken and trying to be practical. Faced with prohibitive rents, we had contemplated a move away from the area, which would involve finding new jobs and moving all the children to new schools. I realised there was another reason this potential move felt so difficult. It echoed the loss of a childhood home that I loved, which had reverberated throughout my life in the form of a continuous feeling of homesickness. And now the same thing was happening to my children. When a plant is forcibly uprooted or moved to a different environment, it may suffer something called root shock. Its leaves curl and wilt, its limbs and twigs die back, its growth is inhibited, and the stress makes it more susceptible to injuries. It may even die as a result of the displacement. I was anticipating a form of root shock for myself and my family, and it was a familiar sensation. In the disorienting, drawn-out limbo in which we found ourselves, waiting for the house to be sold or not sold, I ignored the garden. What was the point of planting or tidying if we were going to leave? But my thinking slowly shifted. As estate agents and solicitors orbited our wary family unit, with no end to the uncertainty in sight, I was drawn back into the garden. I found myself digging, weeding, cutting and planting in spite of our unsteady situation, allowing myself to imagine these seeds growing and flowering as the season turned. It was a modest and quiet act of defiance. As I cared for the land outside our house, it also became an opportunity to look within, to explore the tensions between creating home and feeling trapped by it, to examine the different layers of my life as a daughter, a wife, a mother and a woman. Visiting celebrated gardens in Sussex, swapping cuttings with friends, collecting seeds and poring over bulb catalogues, I found inspiration and hope in the natural world. I discovered stories as porous as the chalk ground beneath the local landscape and as enduring as Sussex flint. My work in the garden, slow, intuitive, responsive, became a way to work out my changing place in the family and to make sense of our precarity. I excavated in layers until I came to ground. This is the story of a garden, of hope and home, and living alongside uncertainty. Oh, how lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. And I love that, that, it's, that the earth was there for you, like in that time, but also that you turned it to it. And no matter how slowly it took to get it, it just sounds like there's that sense of community and that sense of giving and belonging and nurturing. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and with this sort of reciprocal relationship that you have when you're gardening, so you're nurturing something, but it's nurturing you back. Um, and it's, uh, I love the sort of indifference, like the garden didn't care what was going on in my life. My problems were nothing to that garden. And I was just this kind of little speck on the, in its history, and I would be gone, you know, and I, I, there was something really reassuring about that, just the sense that all I need to do is dig or plant, and nothing else really matters. I love that. And it almost inspires me to go out into my, my garden 
and to like do something but I feel like anything I do it never ends out well when I go like when I go and as soon as my hands get in the dirt I don't know what it is but I feel like like death follows (laughs) (laughs) I'm very much an amateur though I mean I've had a lot of that and I don't you know the book isn't like a how to do be a good gardener book because I make tons of mistakes and you know you'd look at my garden it looks nice but it's not like a special place that you'd come and visit Um, but I do think that there's a sort of I think we tell ourselves these stories oh I can't do this and really you can you know I think it's about finding the right things that will grow in the right conditions and maybe you just haven't found the right plant for the right place I think you're right I think I need um, a self-sufficient plant that when when it like let's say the skies and nature and then I don't water it I need a plant that will get up like unroot itself and just walk (laughs) over (laughs) grab a cup of water and splash itself and douse its little you know that's the raving idea (laughs) And Don't worry, you're on. I've got it covered. Exactly. That's what. I, that's the plant I need. <laughs> so, what was it like to write this book? It sounds like, as a time, it sounds so stressful. Not just the like knowing that you have to to move and uproot everyone seems like that's one. You know, that's a certain stress. And then not knowing whether you're going to have to because this might happen and that might happen sounds like even you know additional pressure and stress. What was it like writing through that? It was a quite a weird experience because there wasn't really an end because I didn't know what the ending was going to be. So in a way, I thought, well, how is a reader going to be interested in this? Because there's not this like, ha-ha moment at the end. Mm. I mean, we we still live in the house and it kind of resolved. But, you know, at any point we could be chucked out just like anyone else who's renting. Um, so, yeah, it was a strange book in that way that it was unfolding as I was working on it. But also it really helped me to work through what was happening because I was writing about it and I was processing it. And I was thinking about all these other um, people in you know far worse situations and how they had coped and this sense of resilience how incredibly resilient human beings can be and trying to draw strength from you know people who had survived way worse than what I was going through um so yeah it was a strange thing and I wasn't I was just hoping it would work as a book um but also it really helped me to be writing it like it just helped me to process everything Oh, that sounds wonderful. Like the right book at the right time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and with that in mind, could we have another reading, please? Sure. Thank you. So this is from a chapter called Unfurling. Let me leave the clatter of my life indoors. I want to show you the way a leaf leaves up, gives up its scent when rubbed or the whistle of a pigeon's wings as it passes. I want to bring you beside me as I work, sowing seeds at the garden table. More sweet peas, the first batch didn't germinate. Squash, kale, purple sprouting broccoli, leeks. Observing the weather, a drought, the sky squeezed dry. Biding my time before moving tender seedlings outside, trays balancing on the bathroom windowsill, and potatoes chitting behind the TV. Kneeling amongst the ground elder, filling buckets with uninvited greenery, hands red and sore, legs creaky. There is still no rain. After a deluge that began in October and ended in February, we've had weeks of whitewashed sunshine. The winter grass was a squelching morass, but is now yellowing and crisp, as if its life force is slowly evaporating into the air. It feels strange to be watering the garden in April. This was the month my daughter was born, my only spring baby. Over the years, it's rained, snowed, and been baking hot all beneath April's fickle skies. 
We've held birthday parties in the garden, hiding treasure and making pretend horses out of broomsticks and socks for small girls to gallop around on. We've arranged birthday Easter egg hunts up on the downs when it was so hot, a gaggle of children sheltered in the shade of a spindly tree. April can catch out the novice gardener like me, who gets excited by the first whiff of warmth and moves pelagoniums back outside, only to see them wilt and wither under a late frost. Another strangely worrying dry day of hard sunshine and bleached skies. I step outside after supper, seeking rest after rising early to try to work before the house awakes. The traffic washes past, the sound squeezing through the gap between the garden wall and the police station. I count eight surviving tulips in the pot by the back door. One fell victim to a football, the others were dug up by the dog. They're always something of a surprise, as I can never remember which variety or colour I planted back in the middle of winter. I love watching their coy heads emerge on matchstick stems and trying to work out what they will become. It's odd to think how carelessly I plant tulips now, when back in the 17th century they were so highly valued that a single bulb could be exchanged for gold or houses. Dutch growers were at the centre of the tulip trade, which stretched across Europe and as far as Turkey, making enormous fortunes for, from these flamboyant plants. Tulips take seven years to develop from seed to flower. Their tricksiness, instability and unpredictability heightened the desire amongst collectors for years. But then suddenly tulipomania dissipated like the dew, leaving tulips to become simply, as Michael Pollan writes, mass-produced eye candy. My mother never liked tulips. She said they were too corporate and made her think of roundabouts. They are, I think, perfect signifiers of spring, a taste of the fire and exuberance of the new season after the greyness of winter. I like layering them in pots with irises and narcissi in November, each bulb a nugget of hope for the return of the light and longer days. The two tallest tulips by my back door have begun to unfold, revealing a peach striped with green outer layer and pinky yellow inner folds. Delicate filaments of colour, watercolours smudged with rain, a pursed mouth, their leaves rising modestly, pinched in halfway up the stem, creating a curved funnel to send water down to the roots. Each one is different. I haven't noticed this before, just accepted their bold sweeps of colour as uniform. But when you really look, you see a refinement that is lost in the blocks of bright colour in mass-planted roadside flower beds. Tulips are at their most beautiful at exactly this moment on the cusp of opening, offering a glimpse of their tender insides. Above me are whips of sunset clouds, the same color as the tulips. Shades of orange pink, both above and below me, as if the world itself were simply a glass surface. Tonight is the pink moon of spring, also poetically called the hair moon, sprouting grass moon, egg moon, or super moon. In this soft, luminous, burgeoning evening, it feels like life is a hot spark falling softly onto dry tinder. The next little section um, on this page is a bit from my mum's garden diary. So I kind of intersperse her garden diary that I found with my job. So this is just a little paragraph of her words. 19th of April, 2004. Spring here with warm, sunny, showery weather. Most veg sown, lettuce and onions doing well. Still eating spinach and chard, though ne next lot sown. Lilac and pear tree out, damson and cherry coming. Tulips everywhere, daffodils nearly over. Pulling up weeds by the trugful along the long border. Grass green but mossy. Needs scarifying and treating. How lovely that your book is like in conversation with your mother. And what a treat that you have her diary. 
yeah it, I was so pleased to be able to include that and um so she was a keen gardener and we talked about it a lot it was kind of a shared thing uh, so to be able to carry on those conversations with her after she died was really lovely and um yeah being able to put her words on the page was mine I did a similar thing with my first book where I used my grandmother's uh, diaries and book of lists and there's something about that idea of being in conversation with people that I just really love and almost being the kind of holder of the story but it's not my story really it's other people's I think that's really lovely yeah I think it is um can you tell us I'm always curious and I I do feel like I'm just um on one hand nosy but on another (laughs) hand (laughs) I'm just you know how they talk about how each book kind of teaches you to write it and it teaches you something in that way and I'm just curious with this book what what one thing may might you have learned about yourself or a community your family the legal system to something through the writing of the book that you learned I learned that I can't control everything um so I'm a real I like to plan I like to make lists I like to solve problems and this was a problem I couldn't solve and I had to sit with that and it was an uncomfortable place for me um so yeah, the whole of the journey of this book is about how do we live with that uncertainty? Um, how do we make peace knowing that we may not know what's happening to us the next day? And then obviously the pandemic has been like a huge example where we've all had to learn to do that on a much bigger scale. Um, so I think that's what it taught me. It, it taught me not to be afraid of uncertainty and that there can be power and there can be agency and there can be joy, even in the things that feel really, really challenging. I love that. Absolutely love it. And thank you for sharing that with all of us, because I think it's, a, it's a, one of those lessons that we can all um, kind of learn from and take with us. And as we go through different challenges, knowing that, you know what, you might not always have all the answers. And actually, sometimes that's going to have to be okay. Yeah, it's something that I've learned with my kids as well, like they've had their own struggles, and I haven't been able to make it better for them. And that's been really difficult. But yeah in the process of writing the book I just I'm I'm the tiny insignificant dot I can't solve the world's problems or my all I can do is try and create beauty and love and abundance around me and that's what the garden really was that's what it taught me I love that idea of the the garden as well one a teacher of those things but also as a place of love and abundance and like my goodness like if we can all find that place that's like that garden for us, I think what a, what a joy. Yeah, and a privilege. You know, not everyone has a garden or a space or access to any kind of green space. And if there's a way of finding that same sense of nurturing something that gives something back to you, then, you know, if that's just a pot on a windowsill, I think it can still have a really hugely beneficial effect. But yeah, I, I'm very lucky to be able to have the space that I've got. Oh, wonderful. And can we have our final reading, please? Yes. Thank you. So this is halfway through a section called Bodies. There has been an argument. I retreat to the garden, heart bruised, while the boy nurses his hurt indoors. I water the pots I took from my mother's garden. Two of the rose cuttings look promising and the peony stems haven't wilted. Hope. Digging clears my head, so I decide to tackle the weeds and what will be my cutting patch. It's carpeted with sinuous clumps of bindweed that seem to have no beginning or end. My spade jars and scrapes on the hard earth, but eventually the patch is ready for planting. I carry a tray of fire, dahlia ambitions, ingaro, gallery art fair, totally tangerine, purple flame and melody harmony. 
blood red rudbeckia, cherry brandy and yellow goldstone and chocolate cosmos. I set the plants in their places, flanked by two hollyhocks and a euphorbia oblongata, which I love to cut and put in vases of flowers for its zingy green foliage. The cutting patch looks orderly and hopeful. It has helped. The chicken coop is full of sparrows. They disappear like ma magic, melting into the air when I click open the gate. Listen. The hens are barracking. The collared dove calls. My toe hurts. Traffic thrums, my son thuds and twangs a basketball against the hoop at the side of the house. Smell, the rambling rose, hot grass, cat shit somewhere, a waft of strawberries. I busy myself with planting foxgloves. When I was young, I spent a night in a Welsh cottage sleeping with a foxglove bell on each finger to make my wish for a pony come true. This was the first time I really understood the power of folklore and magic. Spells were not purely the realm of fairies and magicians, Thanks to nature, I could conjure them myself with just a few flimsy purple flowers and a wish. I grow foxgloves now for the bees and their tall spires, but their magic lingers. The soil is so dry it's hard to dig a hole, it just keeps filling up again, the crumbly earth falling in on itself. Fat bees nuzzle the powdery comfy heads which dip as they disappear inside the narrow pink trumpets in an endless cycle of work, joy, work, search, joy, work. The air turns suddenly summer soft. Rain is coming. After parched hot weeks, the breeze brings the promise of a drenching. I pull, pull a plump snail from the rim of my sweet pea pot and automatically snap off a few deadheads from the pinks as I pass. The garden is awash with pale pink. The creamy froth of the rambling rose has been scorched to a blush. Its unsightly rash reminds me of measles, spotted pebbles, a moth's wing, a blackbird's egg, ripples and images from elsewhere reflected along the back wall of the garden. The squash are starting to flower, their flaccid green-orange trumpets snaking across the new vegetable beds. One of my mother's hollyhocks is in bloom. It's painted in a wash of dusky apricot with delicate veins leading to a ring of deep pink with a six-pointed star that holds the fuzzy stamen. Inside, feather-like quills radiate out to lighter shades that blend into a pale greeny-cream pink across the frills of the five petals. The light seems to be sucked inwards. I've passed these flowers so many times, but never really stopped to look. It's like falling into a kaleidoscope. The privet hedge sends its white flowers up to the sky, dropping tiny flakes along the edge of the garden like a seasoning of salt. I pull up limp, limp handfuls of ground elder in the flower beds and they collapse in the heat. A cutting I took from my daughter's rose has taken root and is now over half a metre tall, hidden behind some columbines. I haven't noticed it until now. I cut off the shoots around the base of the apple tree and use one as a prop for a sagging gora in a pot. As I press the twig into the soil, I discover a gold-foiled chocolate coin hidden in some long-ago treasure hunt and never discovered. Wild strawberries sidle along the wooden sleeper separating the lawn and beds. The garden gives up its treasures when it's ready. It invites me to find joy in small everyday things, in the swag of the plum tree, the light playing on a petal, the crisping husks of the lilac blooms. By paying attention and attending to these plants in this place, I can quiet the unsettledness that courses through me. I press, tidy, snip, pull, prune, water, stake, pick and dig until my heart beats in garden time. Sorry about my croaky voice. No problem. I love the idea of garden time. How magical that is. There's something really crazy about garden time because it's kind of has these different rhythms so there's the 
the endless repetition of the cycle of the seasons that you know is coming and then there's this so that feels like this ancient really slow time and then there's a really fast time where everything changes in a minute whether that's just like the light has changed or suddenly a flower opens that wasn't open before or a bird has made a nest somewhere so I love this idea that you sort of tune into a whole different way of yeah time has a completely different sense out there and I wasn't going to ask another question but did you ever get the pony I did it totally works I recommend it (laughs) okay so did this it was going to sleep in a in in the so you get the little bells off the foxglove flower but make sure there's no bees in there because that would not be good yeah and then you put them on your fingers and you fall asleep with them and make a whiff and does it have you have to fall asleep outside or in a cottage or was that you can fall asleep anywhere no i think anywhere i don't think it's specified where you have to be okay i'll I'll let you know how that works (laughs) yeah keep me posted And so my last, where can we find the book? Is there any place that, any special place that you'd like us to go or do you have a preference? Um, so it's in Waterstones and it's online. So hive.co.uk is a brilliant website that donates some of their profits to independent bookstores and bookshop.org also do the same. So they're two really great places to support if you're buying books. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lula. Thank you for joining us for the readings, for the magic. I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure.